Welcome to episode 56 of History Does You. Today we'll be covering the Italian Renaissance, focusing specifically on the cultural, scientific, and military changes on the Italian peninsula and how it really went on to change Europe in a wide variety of ways, not just in Italy itself, but across a lot of different countries. And I've always personally been interested in the Italian Renaissance, not necessarily because of its cultural or religious changes, but when it comes to military history, this was a time when nation states were first coming into fruition, armies were becoming more professional, more sort of regular constructs, and the way wars were being fought. Gunpowder weapons were starting to become the norm. Sort of the era of the knight in shining armor was rapidly coming to an end, and regular people were becoming soldiers. It was a good sort of stable way to make money, either through regular pay or through pillaging or taking different towns during a campaign season. And the sort of elite cadre of warriors that had dominated the Middle Ages sort of ceased to exist. And it's, I think, one of the more remarkable changes when it comes to military history is just the way that I think regular people, regular soldiers became sort of the core of militaries of that era, as opposed to sort of this very specific, rich, elite group that trained all the time and prepared all the time. So I think it's really unique. And I think also the way nation states sort of moved around geopolitically is really unique, especially when it comes to, for example, the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and France. During the Middle Ages, Christendom, Islam constantly clashed. During the Crusades, you had crusading Christian armies occupying some parts of the Middle East. You had them fighting against different Muslim coalitions. And then as you get into the uh, Renaissance era, you see that change and you see nations starting to say, I don't really care what other Christian countries are going to do. If this helps me advance my own interests, I'm going to do it. And that's where France, for example, hey, the Ottoman Empire is trying to undermine the Habsburg Empire. Let's be friends and work towards those goals. And also, I think one of the huge changes was the Reformation, which really divided Christendom along Catholic and Protestant lines. It was the, the Catholic Church, which as an institution had existed for centuries, was sort of losing influence as the church was kind of losing influence within nation states as they either turned Protestant or as monarchies or their governments basically said, we're pursuing our own interests, we're not going to pursue the interests of the Catholic Church. There was a real shift, I think, as the Catholic Church really as an institution for influence in Europe really began to wane. So those are the two things as a background heading into this episode I was fascinated with. But again, just really exploring kind of the cultural, how the different thinkers, scientists really thought about this era is uh, really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Fletcher. It's quite interesting. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Catherine Fletcher. She is a historian of the Renaissance and early modern Europe. She's written numerous books on the era, including The Beauty and the Terror, The Black Prince of Florence and Our Man in Rome, The Divorce of Henry VIII. She has also lectured at Durham University, the University of Sheffield and Swansea University. And in January, 2020, she became professor of history at Manchester Metropolitan University. So welcome on. Thank you very much for having me. And just to start off, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite and how did you become interested in the Italian Renaissance? I guess I would say it's not so much a favorite subject of history, but a favorite place of history. Um, I know like suddenly here in Europe, and we've spent a lot of time in lockdown over the past year or so because of the impact of COVID. So nobody is traveling at the moment. That has really made me miss going to Italy. And I think, you know, where my interest really picked up was 
um, when I was back, back kind of when I was in my 20s, going um, and traveling to Italy for the first time and getting to see the Renaissance city of Florence and then Rome with all its different layers of history. And I think those cities and just the kind of the richness of the kind of presence of the past in the streets was something that really fascinated me. I started to think then about, you know, is there any way I can get a job that will enable me to keep going back? And I'm very fortunate that I ended up where I am now, where, you know, going to Italy and researching that peninsula's past is what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you encountered in sort of your work in history? Well, I mean, apart from the current travel issues, one of the things that's a kind of like on the one hand, it's sort of a perk and it's sort of a nuisance with Italian historical research is that Italy as a country was only unified in 1871. So it does not have this one unified archive. Um, documents get left like where they were. So if you want to research what was happening in Mantua in the 15th century, you have to go to Mantua and they have those documents. You want to know what was going on in Milan, you have to go to Milan. You want to know what's going on in Florence, you have to go somewhere else. And so on the one hand, you get to see all these lovely places, but it's, it's kind of a nuisance. There's no one, like in the UK, here we have one national archive down near London and it has most of the governmental stuff. In Italy, it's completely scattered. So yeah, that's, I mean, it's nice from a sightseeing point of view, but it's not the most convenient thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, and just to get into the Italian Renaissance, which you've covered extensively in your most recent book, Beauty and the Terror, which I definitely recommend the listeners. Just to start, when in your mind does the Italian Renaissance start and who were kind of the main proponents of this Renaissance? Oh gosh, like, so this is such a tricky question because the big names of the Italian Renaissance that people are probably most familiar with are people like Leonardo da Vinci, who's born in 1452, and Michelangelo, who's born in 1475. So they are really around kind of the later part of the 15th century and into the 16th century. So actually, you know, you get Machiavelli, who's not the big name, he's around at that same time. But those are actually really, that's kind of the tail end of the classic Renaissance period that we talk about in history, which goes back much earlier into the late sort of 14th century, the early 15th century in Florence, particularly with the development of what you might call kind of Renaissance humanism, a particular mode of thinking, a kind of intellectual method that is much more based on critical study of texts. It's kind of generalized humanities education um, that starts to develop. And the idea of a kind of renaissance of classical ideas, it's kind of a problematic idea because actually there's a lot more continuity than the old fashioned narrative of there was the classical history and then there was the kind of the bad dark ages when everything was just muddy. And then it was the bright new renaissance and um, doesn't really work like that. But <laughs> there is a certain about of thinking about a revival of classical ideas from the early, late 14th, early 15th century. Mm -hmm. And were these changes mainly in art or science or technology? How was the Renaissance really encapsulated? Well, there are quite a lot in, yeah, in the arts and in the sciences. So you really see a shift in, so what, one of the big shifts in the visual arts is the development of perspective. And that in itself is facilitated by technology because it, it involves techniques of projection. So you start to see paintings that look very much more three-dimensional. 
that represent the point of view of an artist, somebody who is looking into the painting and, and that you can immediately differentiate between the styles of painting. You can spot the people who are coming in between who perhaps have a little bit of combination of the two styles of painting. So there's some technological advance there. There is also a kind of self-conscious effort on the part of some of the major poets, book collectors, people like Poggio Bracciolini, who start going around and trying to collect the ancient manuscripts. Now, the ancient manuscripts are there to be collected. It's not that they've suddenly been lost altogether, but people perhaps haven't been paying so much attention to them. So there is a certain amount of a kind of project of trying to rediscover the best of classical literature. Um, you also see that in architecture as well. So you rediscover classical treatises on architecture like Vitruvius and start building on that in the design of what's, what, at, what at the time is a kind of modern architecture. And how did Renaissance ideas about life differ from those that came about during the Middle Ages? The example that is most often given for this is, you know, I think the first thing to say is that it's often that where these ideas sit in society is they're really quite elite ideas. They're not necessarily what everybody across the board is thinking, although to be fair, everybody can see the changing style of paintings that are being put up in their local church. So it's not that the general population is completely divorced from this. And one of the big developments is the 15th century sort of discovery, which made by several people working independently, that the donation of Constantine is a forgery. So by the donation of Constantine is supposedly the document that establishes the authority of the popes. Um, as the heads of the church, it's meant to be from the ancient Roman emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor. And various people sort of turn, say, say, look through this, they look at it in detail, they analyse manuscript using both the new humanistic techniques, but also some older scholastic methods, because it's never as straightforward as it's just all the new techniques. And they say, well, hang on, this is made up. This document that popes have been used to claim their authority as heads of the church just isn't convincing. And so I suppose that is something where you really start to get a change based on this, these new methods undermining established ideas about authority. So, you know, these, these things gradually start to shift perspectives. And just to switch gears a little bit, throughout this era was the way people thought about economics and business changing from sort of this medieval era as well, or was that still mostly the same? Well, you do get developments in kind of banking and accountancy. So one of the things that comes in at this point, sort of late in the 15th century, is double entry bookkeeping, which is still a kind of modern form of bookkeeping where you kind of register, you basically, it's a sort of superior system of checking and recording all the transactions that your business is making by, you know, basically, as it says, double entry, you are putting everything in two places and then you can kind of reconcile all your totals. And so part of the reason that the Renaissance happens where it does and why you also get a kind of northern renaissance in the low countries, what's now Belgium and the Netherlands, is because these are the richest parts of Europe. They have merchants and they have courts with spare cash to spend, and they spend it on culture. So there's a lot of, and, and particularly in Italy, you get a lot of competition between all these different courts who you have like the Duke of Ferrara, the Marquis of Mantua, essentially selling military services to the larger powers of Italy, getting money in, spending that in a kind of competitive way on commissioning art. So there's an element of prestige, but it's also a prestige that is underpinned by an economic reality that there is wealth flowing around to spend on things like commissioning frescoes. Mm -hmm. And 
with just to kind of pivot back to the church, which you sort of mentioned already, how much did the Reformation have an impact both in Italy or in Europe, just given that the proximity of Rome and the church being based in Italy at that time? Yeah, so well before you get Martin Luther in 1517, supposedly pinning his thesis up on the church door, whether he did that or not, we can argue about the exact, you know, whether that really happened. Um, Well before you get to that, there's a lot of discussion in Rome, within church circles, about the need for reform. They're quite conscious, quite a lot of discussion. I mean, even under Alexander VI, who's the Borgia Pope, you would not think that Borgia is necessarily naturally the people to be doing a reform programme to improve the church. But actually, under a certain amount of pressure, Alexander VI sort of says, you know, we'll have a commission that's going to look at kind of questions of corruption and how much the cardinals are getting paid and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of awareness already that reform of the church is needed. And a lot of people are talking about that. So what you have is this process that experts now often call a long process of Catholic reform, which sort of relates to Protestant reform in interesting ways. And at times, it seems like almost, you know, there are, there are people within Italy. Michelangelo is kind of one of the famous people who's associated with the, the most kind of radical reform movement, which is called a spirituale, who in the kind of 30 years after Luther, before the Catholic Church works out what it's doing, are talking about ideas that are very similar to Protestantism. But eventually what happens is that you end up with a Catholic reform program playing out that gets the Catholic Church into doing some things that are quite like what the Protestants are already doing, but maintains some significant theological distinctions. So it's quite a complicated pattern, but there's a sort of, a, yeah, there's a relationship and there are parallels between the two. But it isn't the case that simply the Protestants broke and did something much more sort of radical and different and the Catholic Church was purely responsive. They were talking about reform almost before Protestantism actually happened. And just to follow up on that, was there a clash between the church and intellectuals or scientists in Italy at that time? Obviously, that's been very popularized in culture with the Da Vinci Code and things like that. Do you think some of those movies or books exaggerate what was going on at that time? Or was that accurate? you think? I mean, like, so So, what happens a lot of the time, I guess the famous cases are much later on with people like Giordano Bruno and Galileo, who are kind of later into the 16th century, the 17th century, so slightly next period. What happens, I think, particularly with when there's all the discussions about what exactly do we think of Protestantism, is that if you are a member of kind of social elite and you need to read these heretical books, as they're described, to be informed about them, then that's kind of okay, as long as you're just reading them for yourself and making some notes, so you're not going around telling the ordinary people what's going on. What they don't want is sort of preaching that risks social order, social sort of disorder. So I think that the sort of technology and science stuff actually is not really a narrative that I see in the sources for this period. There's quite a lot of openness to discussions around modern medicine and so on. Um, there is concern about, for example, new weaponry, which I think we're probably going to get on to a little bit later on with the Italian wars. But that's not so much, that's, I, mean, I think it's kind of fair enough. There are new lethal weapons flying around. Perhaps we do need to have a conversation about that. And how did the discovery of the New World impact Europe and Italy during this era of the Renaissance? Was there a sense of curiosity among Europeans about this new land? Or how did that news sort of impact the Renaissance and Europe in general? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there is definitely a big demand for narratives of this new world, because this is quite a shake-up to contemporary understandings of what the world looks like. I mean, people have not got used to the idea that there are three known continents, right? Europe, Africa, and Asia. You know, obviously, initially, the Americas are sort of assumed to be somewhere like in East Asia. And then people like realize that, no, it doesn't work like that um, quite quickly. And so, yeah, there's a real strong market for news from the new world. There's actually quite a market for fake news from the new world. And people sort of make up voyages and pretend they've been on voyages, but they actually haven't. So it definitely sells. There's definitely a sense of curiosity. It sort of shakes up the established worldview. Somebody said you really have to think, okay, what is this place over here that we haven't heard of before? How does it fit into the old ancient Greek and Roman authorities? Because that, again, sort of questions the classical knowledge. It questions the biblical knowledge. This place doesn't straightforwardly fit into what either the ancient and secular authorities are saying or what the ancient Christian authorities say. Mm-hmm. And this actually comes from a listener that, you know, as I mentioned, I was doing this topic and they were wondering, was slavery still a practice in Europe at this time? And if so, did what purpose did it serve? Yeah, so there are quite, particularly in Southern Europe, not so much in Northern Europe, in Southern Europe, there are significant numbers of enslaved people. One of the things that is sort of interesting, so these people are working primarily in domestic contexts, as a housemaid, for example, or in agricultural, as agricultural workers. And what you find is that historically, in the kind of late medieval Italy, slave traders from places like Genoa would be importing enslaved people. So the rule was you weren't meant to enslave Christians, but they would be be trafficking people from the Black Sea, from around the Black Sea ports into Italy to work. Now, after 1453, when Constantinople um, falls to the Ottoman Empire, that becomes a lot more difficult. And so it actually becomes quite attractive to some of these businessmen to start investing, first of all, in slave trading on the West African coast. And then it's very logical to somebody like Columbus, who's from Genoa, which has this very long tradition of enslavement. When he goes, ends up in the Americas, to think, oh, I know, like, what'd be a good idea? We could enslave some of these people we've found here. So, like, there is a sense in which, although the nature of slavery actually changes quite significantly between the old medieval model and the transatlantic chattel slavery model, there is a continuity in the form of people like Columbus between the old system and what was happening in Genoa and that new system that starts to develop. And was this an era where education and reading became more prevalent among wider parts of the population or was this still isolated to the elite of society? Well, this is the period when printing really takes off and you start to get much more material disseminated through printing. And of course, The thing about printed texts going around is that you don't necessarily need to be able to read them yourself personally to be able to hear what's in them. So there's lots of different like multiple levels on which literacy operates. So people are not necessarily either completely literate or completely illiterate. There are quite a lot of people around who can sign their name, maybe sign a receipt in a shop, know enough basics to be able to read off like their shopping list or to be able to check the figures in a column on a business account, but might not be reading a very sophisticated text. But you get this sort of circulation of news, for example, via pamphlets that can be read out by a singer in the street. So there's a kind of, although, yeah, by no means everybody is literate, that's probably still a minority of the population overall, even in the most educated urban centres. 
there are lots more people who can get access to print material than, you know, just because printing allows you to produce a lot of copies and you only need one literate person to read it out to the rest of you. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of wrap up some of these questions about the Renaissance, what was sort of the system of governance in Italy at that time? How did either intellectuals or elites view governance? Were there any inklings of democracy or just really in general, how are these areas governed? Okay, well, it's a mix of different types of government. Um, So predominantly, you would either be a Republican state or a princely state. So princely states, they've got a king or a prince or a duke at the top of them. I would count the papal states within that category because the Pope is essentially a temporal ruler of a whole part of Italy as well as being the head of the church. And then you have a number of republics, which include Genoa, Venice, Florence, Lucca, Siena. So quite a few republics in which there is a somewhat broader base of government. Now, it's still a fairly narrow set of elite men who are involved in that broader base of government. There's a kind of weird paradox that sometimes women have more informal power in the court societies than they do in the republics. But there certainly is an idea of of that republican government is a good and positive thing and an improvement on having a prince. However, then what actually happens is that through the 16th century, some of the republics change into principalities. This is what happens in Florence. From the 1530s, Florence switches from being a republic to being a duchy. So the Medici family, initially in Florence, they're the kind of first among equals. They are effectively the ruling family, but it's a republic. And sometimes they get kicked out and they're exiled and then they fight their way back again. And that becomes a duchy. They then take over Siena and incorporate it into what becomes the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. So yet there is absolutely this this sense, and I think that a lot of later thinkers about republics look back to people like Machiavelli writing on the subject of the Republic of Florence for inspiration. And a lot of later republican thinkers see this is an important place and time in terms of political inspiration and discussion about how governance should be done. And so, yeah, absolutely. It is a very live discussion, particularly in the the kind of 15th and early 16th centuries. And just to switch gears to the Italian wars, which you write about in your most recent book, Italy sort of became a battleground between France and Spain or the Holy Roman Empire, as it was sort of called at that time. Why was this area so important to sort of these nation states outside of mainland Italy? Well, first of all, it's a very wealthy area. So having the Italian states as part of your sphere of influence is valuable in terms of trade relations and so on. It's also still at this point, really the trading crossroads of the Mediterranean. So all the commodities that come in from Afghanistan, from China, along the Silk Road, get shipped up from Constantinople, Istanbul, along the Mediterranean, up to Venice for trading. That, like, It's a really important marketplace. So that obviously, centuries time, that's going to change and the Atlantic trade is going to become very much more important. But for the moment, it's about wealth and access to trade links. So it really does make sense to be friends with these rich little countries and exercise and influence over them as far as possible. Mm-hmm. And did the Italian war show how warfare was also changing during the Italian Renaissance? 
Yeah, so at this point, we're seeing some quite significant technological changes. On the one thing we get is more portable cannons. So the French are able to kind of move cannon over the Alps. And then there's a kind of arms race between effective cannon with which you can sort of besiege walled towns and the development of a particular sort of style of fortification, which is called the Tras Italienne, um, which is a style of fortified walls around towns that can be protected with gunfire because small arms, small portable handguns are also coming into their own at this point. And this is a period when you first start to see, yeah, military victories thanks to one side's superior use of handgun technology. So a lot of technological change there going on. A lot at very, very early stage of what historians sometimes call the military revolution has a shift towards more permanent armed militia and more people who can shoot thanks to the fairly basic training, which is much easier to do than learning to shoot with bows and arrows, which takes a lot more physical strength and a lot more practice. And were there interactions with Italian states outside of mainland Europe, such as the Ottoman Empire? And if so, what were those relations? What did they look like? Were they solely economic or did they have diplomatic relations? How did that kind of function? I mean, there certainly are embassies that come and go, particularly between Venice and the Ottoman Empire and also earlier on um, the Mamluk Empire in the late 15th, early 16th century. Um, so that's an empire that's basically based in Egypt. Um, the Venetians, Ottomans in particular, are very sort of tense standoff for power in the Eastern Mediterranean and particularly control of the strategically placed islands in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that sort of shapes a lot of the conflict there. But when they're at peace, they have diplomatic relations. They don't always have quite the same type of permanent embassies that Christian powers are starting to have between one another. But that alliance is very important. And then later on in the 1530s, after the Spanish really start to get the upper hand in the Italian wars, you see the beginning of the very, very long standing sort of more than centuries long alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire, where that alliance, even though it's considered a bit like, hold on, you're having an alliance with a non-Christian power, and we don't really approve of that. However, that is considered by France to be a valuable counterweight against Spanish power building up just too much. Because of course, by this point, Spain has a load of territories that it's captured in the new world. So Spain has more money coming in, it's becoming a very big global power, and France needs some counterweight to that. And just to ask some uh, concluding questions, do you think the Renaissance kind of contributed to Europe's ability and perspective about going out and conquering or colonizing most of the world? Yeah, I think that there's obviously there's some sense in which if you look back at the at the Romans, at the ancient Romans, and if you're kind of living in a place which sort of sits in the old imperial capital and you've seen and experienced all the kind of the leftovers of what was the Roman Empire, there is a sense in which those sort of ideas of empire are almost, you know, quite present around you. And so when we think about the kind of mentalities of empire, and the extent to which that just might operate subliminally, I think that that presence of the Roman past in Italy is probably quite important. And I think it certainly it contributes quite in the money, contributes in quite a literal way, because people like the Medici putting money into some of the, the overseas voyages, they are investing 
in slave trading. We know, for example, that Mona Lisa's husband had financial interests in Madeira, which was a newly colonized island by the Portuguese in the Canary Islands. We know he brought enslaved people to Florence and that they were baptized there. So there's all these people who are kind of have very direct relationships between being part of the Italian Renaissance society, but also being part of these new projects and seeing them really as a business opportunity. Um, So I think, yeah, absolutely. It's not a straightforward relationship. Italy, because it's not one big, powerful country on its own, is not running its own sort of colonial projects, but it is certainly helping to finance other people's. Mm -hmm. And just as a final question, what do you think the legacy of the Italian Renaissance is? Oh, wow. Well, apart from, I mean, a lot of very, very gorgeous art and architecture and church buildings and all the rest of it, I think it's very interesting that it is perhaps this period in which we still have this idea of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance woman as a person who is a kind of like a rounded individual. I think in the modern world, there is ten, you know, we kind of move into this world where everything is very, labour and work is very divided up into these little segments. You can be an expert in one thing, but you can't work across the board. And one of the nice things I think about Renaissance culture is the idea that you can be interested in more than one thing. And I think if, and, and you can see how how art and science actually sometimes fit together very nicely. And I suppose that if, yeah, I wanted to sort of pick up one positive legacy of the period, I think that would very much be it. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Fletcher. I think it's a really great sort of overview of the Italian Renaissance. Although we focus really heavily on Italy, I really also wanted to get into kind of how the Renaissance was changing Europe as a whole. And I think set the stage for some historians call, you know, the early modern era or the very late Middle Ages. Again, I think it's really an era that bridged between sort of the middle or the dark ages, as some people referred it to, and sort of the more modern Europe that would go on to pretty much dominate the rest of the world. If you think about it, this was right around this era was when Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic. And what started again in what is now North and South America really spread across the globe. And Europe, I think it set the stage for a lot of the ways people would sort of view the rest of the world view each other and everything like that. So again, I think it's interesting just to think about how it all came about with an era before that had such a sort of entrenched feudal system that had very rigid constructs when it came to class and the way people acted and everything like that. And all that changed rapidly within a few centuries, just in terms of setting the stage for geopolitics, which again, is just always something I'm interested in. The way nation states begin to have more centralized governments, begin to have more professional armies, begin to figure out becoming friends with enemies, becoming enemies with friends. There's a lot more maneuvering that I think made the Italian renaissance era quite unique so i hope you enjoyed the episode hopefully it's a bit of a change of pace i know we haven't covered sort of the middle ages the early modern period very much in depth but again i think it's a great way to get background um, from an expert historian so i hope you enjoyed the episode if you have reached this point in the podcast you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through 
As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.